Hello, welcome to the Tech for Good podcast. We are very passionate about two things, technology and our world. In each pod, we will be interviewing some fascinating people, business leaders, but those with a special interest in solving the biggest issues facing humanity today. Think the environment, think healthcare provision during a pandemic, think global social injustice. If you want to know more about technology's immense potential to fix and transform, then you're in the right place. In this episode, Stuart Hodge speaks to Martin Mackay. Martin is founder and CEO of Texthelp, an international education technology company. The use of edtech is sharply rising because of COVID-19. In the interview, Martin speaks about the power of what he calls learning analytics. He shares a very personal story about why he first started working with assistive technologies, and he considers the possibility of a fully automated classroom. But first, Stuart gets Martin's thoughts on the edtech boom. Say that it's buoyant is an understatement. It's uh, we have just had this explosion of growth of, of demand for uh, technology, particularly to help teachers connect with kids who are at home and trying to deliver instruction and uh, you know assess homework completely digitally. Um, things like practicing reading and math, uh, you know, doing that digitally. You know, math instruction a lot of it happens on paper, and whenever your students are. 20 miles away, it's hard to do that on paper. So, um, you know, that kind of uh, tools to, to help teachers deliver math instruction digitally. We've seen those products just uh, usage go through the roof. It's like uh, tenfold. On, I'm, on I'm not surprised. Year. I'm not surprised at all. I think it's really funny, though. E- education seems to have been an anomaly in the sense of if you look at just about every other sort of facet or, or sector of industry, the concept of the paperless office is something that people have been driving towards. But in education for so long, there was this kind of resistance towards that, whereas now circumstances have dictated that they, they, they have to do that. And yeah. you, you guys are obviously in a unique position to, 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 to help facilitate that as well. Yeah, it's just it's it's just pushed us over the hump. You know, there's, there's always been a kind of uh, a group of teachers who are, uh, love technology, see the benefits of it, and uh, and they embrace it. But it's it's never the whole school. There's always uh, you know a good proportion of the school who are paper kind of holdouts, and they like conventional <laughs> instruction. But you know, there's a lot. You, I mean, instruction in a classroom is going to be better than uh, than distance learning. But good technology can make distance learning, you know, reasonably good. It's not going to be as good as being in a classroom and. A teacher at the front of the class can scan the room and watch kids' eyebrows and see who's confused and uh, get a lot more kind of real-time feedback from uh, from the uh, the learning experience. But um, yeah, this has just absolutely accelerated us into this uh, digital future. So, so what, what, are you, what are you most excited about then? I am most excited about, well, a, a few different things. Um, one of them is uh, in the context of right now, uh, we've got a math product which is absolutely flying. We've been on a campaign to make math digital for a couple of years. Um, we just think that math instruction is, has been happening on paper for way too long. And if we can make it digital, you can reach out to people who are who maybe can't even attend a, like a physical school building. You can kind of reach a, a global audience and allow um, 
students and educators to interact uh, digitally. I just think that's great. You can reach a much, a much, much wider audience. And the other thing that I think that's really interesting is um, an area that we've got into over the past couple of years, which is learning analytics, uh, which is, um, mm. you know, when kids are using digital tools, you can then kind of observe their learning and, uh, and track it and give them feedback on their learning progress in a much more kind of granular and interesting way. Well, you see granular and interesting, but I also think there's a real-time aspect to that rather yeah. than sort of filling in. So if we, if we go back to the, the older concept of you do a worksheet, you get 20 questions right and, and 15 wrong, then you look back at the 15 wrong. Whereas if you're doing that incrementally and you're doing it in real time, then you can actually yeah. give feedback at an earlier stage in the process potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And the earlier the feedback comes, obviously the more impactful it is because people can remember what they did, how they, how they were thinking when they, you know, completed the question. If they get the feedback straight away, then that's great. And also, you know, I'm particularly interested in writing and the, and the instruction of writing, because if, if kids do a worksheet and they've got yes, no answers or multiple choice answers, they can see what they got right and what they got wrong. But whenever you assess a kid's writing, um, if, you, if you give a kid an essay back and you give them a B plus, that's not really feedback because they don't know what they need to do to get it from a B plus to an A. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that kind of rich granular feedback that says, uh, you know, you could use more mature vocabulary in this paragraph and, uh, you know, th th these sentences are too long. And that sort of feedback allows kids to be more thoughtful about their writing and treat it as something that they can improve rather than um, let them, them have a kind of more meta uh, thoughtful experience about their writing, I think. I think that's one of the most interesting things. I think as well, what, what, what makes this particularly interesting as a space to me is the idea that, I mean, you've got, you've got sort of the, the, you guys who are providing the tools, then you've got the teachers who are using the tools to deliver lessons. But what you've also got to look at is you've got to look at the way that children are changing. You've got yeah. to look at the way that they are, the way that they are used to experiencing the world is changing. I mean, I, yeah. I'm part of the, the last generation that grew up without the internet growing up. I can remember looking words up in a thesaurus that I'd, uh, or a dictionary yeah, yeah. that I bought from the wall, you know, Absolutely. whereas now you Google that in seconds. And yeah. these kids, I think I think the where the real opportunity for me lies in the ed tech space is in the fact that, that these kids are going to be receptive to that. If anything, yeah. the, the resistance might come from, as you say, the teachers who are maybe committed oh. to the older ways. Is that yeah. the experience that you've found? Well, yeah, so in, in, our, in our industry, we refer to the kids as the digital natives. You know, they grew up and the, they're, they're yeah. digitally native. And there's a kind of generation of teachers who are not digital natives. And that uh, the interaction there is the challenging one. But the kind of next generation or new generation of teachers are, can relate to it much better. And, uh, you know, one thing that we do need to be careful with is, uh, is screen time. You know, you don't want, we don't want to be encouraging kids to be sitting glued to a screen and doing the kind of endless scroll uh, thing. But absolutely, you know, this should allow kids to learn uh, faster. Uh, if they, are, you know, if they're reading a paper book and there's a word that they don't understand, you know, they would have to go and get a paper dictionary and look it up. But if, they, if they're not good with the alphabet and, you know, leafing through a big dictionary and if they're not good with reading, probably trying to find a paper book and read the definition is not easy. But nowadays, if there's a word they don't understand, they can click on it, click play, listen to the word being read aloud, listen to the dictionary definition being read aloud, and they can just do it immediately, instantly. 
So, you know, there, it, it just enables them to learn much more independently. And also, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't think about. We, we get started out in the, you know, people with communications problems area and uh, special education. And that's how we got into this whole um, space that we're in. But there are yep. lots of other reasons why people have difficulty reading. Lots and lots of people all around the world are learning in their second language. Mm -hmm. And very often, you know, if you've got like um, immigrant populations, you'll have kids who are coming home from school with an English homework and maybe their parents don't speak English and are really not able to help them uh, support their learning, uh, you know, in the language that they're being taught in. So uh, technology is a great leveler there that really helps them um, you know, uh, consume the learning materials in English, but with uh, support for their, you know, it, it will deliver support in their first language. Well, uh, that, that is important. I can relate to that myself. I, I had a couple of years when I was eight till I was 10, where I went to a Spanish school and it wasn't one of these sort of uh, English speaking, learn Spanish schools. It was just a Spanish yeah. school in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. I'm getting taught sort of Spanish lessons at school, going back home, showing my mom and dad the stuff. And I mean, it could be Greek for or hieroglyphs yeah. for, all, for all they know, you know. Um, yeah. So I think having those kind of tools is quite important. But one of the reasons I mentioned that is because that takes you back to a period in time that I want to I want to have a little think about before we sort of look towards the future. And that's yeah. this period just over a quarter of a century ago, Kevin, <laughs> my age away a wee bit there, um, yeah. where you guys were at the sort of cusp of text help just exploding into to what it's become. So yeah. I want to talk a bit about sort of where you were, where the genesis of the idea came from that you could really provide something of value to people. Yeah. So we are, so our roots are in assistive technology. Uh, so technology to help people. And most people who get into assistive technology have some personal motivation for, uh, for doing so, because it's a funny industry to just kind of stumble into. And uh, I had, when I was young, my dad had a stroke and uh, lost the ability to speak or he really couldn't communicate uh, and lost the ability to use his right arm and leg, all sorts of stuff. Wow. And I was profoundly, uh, impactful. Uh, seeing, I can imagine, like, yeah. uh, You know, seeing an, uh, an adult who had taught me to read and write all of a sudden lose the ability to do that. And uh, so I was very, um, it, it had a big impact on me. And I always had that in my mind. If I, you know, if I got a job, it would be trying to maybe help people who had strokes or something like that. And we ended up getting into assistive technology and making software for uh, not just people with strokes to help them communicate, but also cerebral palsy, motor neuron disease, uh, all that sort of stuff. So the same sort of tools that you would have seen Stephen Hawking using, single yep. switch communication devices. So we're doing that for a few years. And then um, I was talking to a lady in Scotland, and uh, at, I think it was Glasgow College of Art. And she was saying, you know, that uh, they had a very small number of students with cerebral palsy, but in art college, you know, probably 12% of people had dyslexia. And if we could do something for dyslexic kids, we would reach an enormous audience. And uh, so I didn't even really know. I didn't understand very much about dyslexia and went off to try to research that. I remember flying to Los Angeles, actually, and meeting a guy called Marshall Raskin, who runs a, a research center out there, or he did. I think he's retired now. And he was very generous, shared some of his research with me. And based on that, I, we made our first dyslexic spell checker. And uh, then we just kind of grew it from there. So it started out, you know, um, as a kind of 
communication tools for people with disabilities and we move towards dyslexia. And then when you get into dyslexia and start helping people in the classroom, you start realizing, you know, there are other people in the class here who can really benefit from this. The kids who, um, like in Florida and, um, you know, Los Angeles, kids who have got Spanish as their first language are maybe like linguistically isolated because when they go home, their parents and community all speak Spanish and, you know, English literacy is not super high. Uh, so we adapted the tools then to become more useful for uh, for that group. And then we got into this thing called universal design for learning. And universal design for learning is a, it's a brilliant, it's, it comes from architecture. So, you know, if, if we build a new building these days, it's mm -hmm. just an absolute given that the building's going to have an accessible entrance for wheelchair users. It's going to have the little braille dots on the on the lifts. Yep. So whenever you go into a building, it's universally designed for the whole population, regardless of ability or disability. But whenever you're creating learning materials for your classroom, you can use the principles of universal design there. So that instead of, you know, if you create a paper textbook, well, visually impaired people can't read the paper textbook and people with physical disabilities often can't turn the pages. But with an ebook, uh, you know, um, kids can use an ebook visually impaired people can listen to the ebook. Um, people who don't have English as a first language can just use a translation tool on the ebook. So it's really that that universal design for learning thing really appealed to me because it, um, it, it's, it kind of levels the playing field for everyone. And so we got into universal design for learning. Um, we've been working with an organization in North America for oh, a very long time, probably 15 years, maybe more, uh, uh, called CAST. And they've been uh, at the at the core of this uh, universal design for learning movement, and that has got us into not just um, English and dyslexia and helping you know literacy generally in in the English mm -hmm. language. We've also done some stuff in Spanish and Portuguese, but they encourage us to look at math um, because math is a language of its own. If you look at a math book, of course, and I yeah, and if you look at a math book and you see the symbol for pi, um, no one, no one. Teach, well, obviously you have to learn, you know, that this this little symbol, it's you verbalize it as pi. And if someone says the word pi to you, that's how you write it down. And here's the concept of what it means in, in math. And so for people who have uh, who struggle with literacy, they struggle with math for the same reason. Uh, they have to learn this new uh, vocabulary and language uh, for math. So we set about doing the same thing for English that we did with math. I'm very fortunate to have got into a sphere of work where it's, technically challenging and enjoyable, but we're also um, doing some social good at the same time. Hello, I'm Daniel Brigham, editor of the Tech for Good magazine. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and if you want more, why not head over to techforgood.digitalbulletin.com for some amazing and thought-provoking stories. How about AI's role in fighting the Californian wildfires? Or maybe one startup's mission to end illegal fisheries using satellites and machine learning? Read and subscribe at techforgood.digitalbulletin.com. Just on the topic for social good as well, um, there must have been some inspiring stories throughout the history of Textile, throughout all the work that you guys have done. A couple maybe, I'm sure you could pick from a plethora of yeah, them, but I if you could pick out a couple for me that really resonated with you personally. Lots of, lots of, we've had letters from people who, uh, I, you know, who were absolutely failing at school 
and they, they send a letter when they graduate from university, which is fantastic. You know, and they say, oh, without your tools, you know, I couldn't have even made it through school. We get letters from teachers who they, where they have a breakthrough moment with a kid because, you know, when kids can't read and they struggle with communication, I mean, it's a human, absolute human need to com communicate and connect with other people. And if you can't understand and you can't make yourself be understood and express your knowledge, it is the most frustrating thing in the world. And kids then, they don't feel like they're making progress and they feel like they're failing and it creates behavioral problems in class. And then teachers really struggle with them. And, uh, you know, you, when you hear from a teacher to say that uh, a kid started using our tool and they had a breakthrough moment and the kids started to embrace their, you know, em embrace their schoolwork and actually participate in class and actively start learning. We've got a great, like, um, uh, example from a kid in the US who uh, he, he was being educated, taught on paper, had dyslexia and his mother was researching this and she found out about us and put her teacher, put the kid's teacher in touch with us. And the kid, we had examples of his homework where he had written and you know, the teacher would have a question and he would write in IDK, which is his abbreviation for- I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. And he, the reason why he would write down I don't know is he was so embarrassed about his spelling and his handwriting that he just didn't want to do it. He did because he knew if he wrote it, he would fail anyway. And um, so his teacher then uh, allowed him to start doing his homework on a with a word processor with our tools in there with the word prediction to help him not make spelling mistakes and to give him the confidence to try to type the word that he wanted to type even if he couldn't spell it because we would we would spell it for him. And it's absolutely transformative. It's incredible. So it's, when you see that sort of thing happening, uh, it's great. And also, like, as another funny one, dyslexia is, you know, there's definitely a kind of genetic um, aspect to it. Very often, uh, if you've got a couple of dyslexic parents, you'll, you'll have uh, a dyslexic kid. And we had an example where a young lady, uh, she was about 15 or 16, and uh, she uh, was uh, dyslexic. This is in the U.S., and she had our uh, software on her computer. And her dad was uh, in the Marine Corps, actually, and was often, I think it was Iraq, it was a good while ago. And wow. uh, um, his wife, he came home from Iraq, and uh, I'm going to tear up. <laughs> his wife walked past his office, uh, or their, 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 you know, their den, and he was using our tool to read out an email from his daughter because he was dyslexic and couldn't read. And he was in his fatigues, tears dripping. Yeah, yeah, tip. yeah, yeah. And it was the first time he'd been able to read. Um, you know, he's an adult with, a, with an 18-year-old kid. And it was the first time he'd been able to actually understand what his daughter was trying to say to him. That's so, phenomenal. Uh, yeah, things like that are, are uh, very gratifying when that happens. Oh, I, can, I can totally understand. That's quite inspiring. See, when it comes to on a more macro level, though, do you think that tools such as those that you've been able to build have helped fight a bit of the stigma that there was around dyslexia and around other learning disabilities? Like, do you think they've helped in that fight? Hopefully so. You know, dyslexia is, shouldn't be regarded as, uh, you know, a, a weakness or a disability. It's actually, it's a strength. We're all a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like whenever you see, see people on a rugby field, we're all different shapes and sizes. There's a place in the rugby field for everyone. And it's the same with our the, the way that our brains are organized. There's exactly. It's just the way your yeah. brain works, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's a place for everyone. 
dyslexic people tend to make very good architects, very good designers. They can think better uh, spatially. The only thing they can't do very well is is read. And these days, uh, you know, a lot more learning is happening by video. And certainly, there's tools around to help people uh, read and write. So, um, you know, I, I think hopefully we've we've leveled the playing field uh, a little bit. Let's talk about the space right now then, Martin. What are you most excited about in terms of, of kind of key trends or key things happening right now in the space? In EdTech, um, I think a couple of things. I think collaboration. Um, and, and Google got there first, but Microsoft are there now. To have kids to be able to jump into the same document at the same time, even though they're digitally separated, even though they're wherever they are around the world, to have four or five people be able to jump into a document and work on it together collaboratively, I think that's exciting. It's opening up a whole bunch of new uh, learning opportunities. And then also, I think this learning analytics uh, thing that's going on is going to be uh, enormous and really um, useful and beneficial. It's kind of like, um, when I think about it, I think about um, it like the a Fitbit. The Fitbit is really a tool that collects fitness analytics. You know, mm-hmm. it, it um, you just wear it on your wrist and forget about it. Uh, but it counts your steps, it keeps a track of your heart rate or, you know, swimming or running or all those activities. And then when you're interested in it, you can look at it and see, well, how many steps did I do today? And if you've set yourself a goal and you look at the, and you're, you look at your watch and you're a few steps short, you can go for a stroll. And uh, that little bit of discretionary effort on your part can get you to your goal. And I think learning analytics is going to do the same thing for learning. So, you know, inobtrusively in the background, uh, these tools can track reading behavior and writing behavior and have a private kind of analytics feed for the kids so that they can uh, see how much they're writing, what the maturity of the writing is, uh, what subject areas really seem to be most interested, uh, what their you know, spelling and punctuation and grammar uh, proficiency levels are and so on. What's going to be interesting is going to be looking at how the applications of that are going to happen. So it's not just going to be the the fact that it's happening in and of itself. It's like, how is that then going to be able to be applied in a way that's beneficial to individuals and to groups? Because that's the fascinating thing about the ed tech space as well, is because you can can create solutions for large groups of people or for individuals or for a kind of combination of both, you know? Yeah, I think that, I think that, um, you know, providing analytics to teachers is really interesting because it can give them actionable information. So mm. and I can use an example of, of this in like oral reading fluency. Whenever kids learn, read, um, the way to track their progress is in, in correct words per minute. So whenever they read, you can keep a track of how many words they read correctly in a minute. That's their WCPM score. And there's not, there are national norms and you can kind of keep a track of all that. But if a kid's, um, if you actually get the audio recording and um, you know, they say the kid is reading at 120 words correct per minute and they should be at 140. Well, that just tells you that they're off track, but it doesn't tell you why. Learning analytics can say when this kid is reading, their error types are mainly mispronunciations and hesitations, uh, or you know, their error types are mainly omissions or um, transpositions, you know, where they kind of swap letters around. Mm-hmm. And those two, it might be the same number, but the error types from the learning analytics tells you a completely different story because one of those kids has got a problem with foundational phonics. If they get up, come up to a word and they hesitate and then they mispronounce it, they don't have the phonic skills to attack the word and break it down and, you know, and verbalize it. Whereas if they are omitting words or transposing words, 
could be a visual challenge. They might need glasses, you know, they could be umpteen little reasons, but a teacher can see behind that and then differentiate the instruction so that they're uh, able to, 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 you know, take the right steps for the right kids. Uh, I, th- I think it's a fascinating sort of period to, to, to be in this space. And I mean, it's obviously, I'm sure you've been very driven and passionate from the start. But for me, it strikes me, ju- just, just as a personal opinion, that this uh, feels like the moment where the EdTech space is more important than it's ever been. And that it's only going to continue to grow more so uh, yeah. as a result of everything that's happening in the world right now. Uh, would I, you agree yeah, with that? I completely agree, yeah. There's been, I mean, we, we can just see it from our user acquisition rate, the, the rate at which we're acquiring users has gone absolutely through the roof. And I know that we're not alone, you know, in our, in our community, I'm, you know, I speak with other uh, software companies and large education publishers, and we can see that right across the board, uh, usage is up. And it's because, you know, teachers need to be able to connect with their students. And, uh, you know, the only way that you can really do that practically these days is using, uh, is using technology. So yeah, that's, uh, you know, the ed tech sector is absolutely booming. Do you want to keep up to date with the latest in enterprise, technology, and digital transformation? Visit digitalbulletin.com for news, long reads, thought leadership, and so much more. That's digitalbulletin.com. How far are we from having the, a, a sort of fully automated kind of classroom? Because obviously at the moment it's more of a sort of, it's, it's a blend of different things, but how far are we from having that sort of, and, and you have spoken yourself quite rightly, Martin, about how it's got to be a balance. There has to be a balance yeah. there, but having the the facilities and the, I mean, the access more than anything yeah, for yeah. students to, to, to get that, if that's what they need, if that's yeah. the best tools for their learning. I think that's the, the first thing to say here is that, you know, ICT, uh, should really uh, like we have a we have a, a guy who works with us in Australia uh, who says like ICT really stands for I can't teach computers can't teach and we we need teachers to teach uh, mm-hmm. but technology can really level the playing field and uh, make things easier and allow kids to sort of almost take charge of their own learning. I think the first thing is going to be one to one computing initiatives where every kid has a device and every kid has connectivity and the COVID thing at the minute. There's a, it really is exacerbating um, inequity in society. So, you know, kids who live in wealthy homes who have got high-speed broadband and there's like three kids and they've each got a laptop, they're fine. They've got, you know, they have got no real disadvantage. But then if you go to like an urban area where there's a bunch of like disadvantaged kids um, or they've maybe only got like, maybe they don't even have a laptop in the house, but, and but there's maybe like two cell phones. And, you know, the, the COVID thing has really made a, um, like an, an imbalance worse there. Some of the school districts that have been working with have been fantastic. They've been using some of the COVID stimulus money to get Chromebooks and laptops for their kids and actually using the school buses as community Wi-Fi hubs. So they'll put like wow. a 5G, yeah, they'll put a 5G um, hotspot on the, on the school bus and drive the school bus into the project area. And then, you know, the kids can sit near the bus, socially distanced, and get a Wi-Fi signal and participate in learning. So, that, that's, um, 
Yeah, Even that, uh, it seems like something. If you'd conceived this to me as an idea 15 years ago, I'd have been like, "Yeah, it's just something out of a movie. That was never going to happen." Uh, <laughs> no, it, it, it is crazy, and I, like I, I really do think in the next two to three years, um, and COVID has absolutely accelerated this. One-to-one computing, you know, where every kid has got their own device, is absolutely going to be a, like I think within a couple of years it could be a reality. Um, I know that, you know. Uh, Dell and Lenovo and so on, they're having difficulty supplying at the minute. There's so much demand. Um, and it's really, um, you know, school districts and local education authorities are investing in getting devices out to kids because they know we can really only do distance learning effectively if there's technology there. And But then even beyond COVID, in a post-COVID environment, no one thinks that this is the last pandemic. You know, it's there's going this will happen again and maybe it will be 100 years, but Probably not. And so any school system who's completed a, a risk assessment, they know that learning from home is something that they have to be able to deliver. And learning from home can really only happen with, uh, with technology. So I think in a few years, um, you know, one-to-one computing is probably going to be a reality for us, which I think is great. I do know. I mean, me too, me too. Um, just to, to sort of look at it, you've obviously been a, a, a voice at the forefront of this sector for a long time now. So you, you seem like a very, very good person to, to, to throw this piece of string question at, which right. is I want to break it into blocks, right? I want to break it into five, 10, and then 50 years, right? So yeah. what do you see? How do you see the edtech sector developing over five years, then over the next decade, and then 50 years into the future? Where, where, where are things going? Okay, so five years. I, I kind of, as I say, I just gonna we're gonna be accelerated towards this one-to-one computing um, environment where every device, every kid's gonna have a device, every kid's gonna have uh, connectivity, and that'll just be a kind of normal, uh, a normal part of life. I think you know, um, cell phones are getting more and more interesting sensors on them, so you're gonna see probably in that sort of shorter time frame more augmented reality uh, type things. Um, in 10 years, you know, honestly, I think in 10 years, we could have neural implants. I really do. Uh, you might think I'm like, uh, I'm crazy here, but if, if definitely you know, not given like, the current at, situation. Yeah, if you look at aviation, uh, you know, from 1900 to 2000 in that 100 years, aviation didn't really exist in 1900. And the, the Wright brothers got some contraption off the ground to go like a hundred yards. And uh, within a hundred years, we had people on the moon. And uh, you know, in the last five years, if you look what's happened with drones, so there's there's no reason why that rate of change won't occur in educational technology. And actually, because educational technology is digital, it's way more scalable than any of these things that have to happen in the in the physical world. To get a new plane created takes about twenty years. Um, yeah. To make a new piece of software, you know, uh, it you know it's it's super quick because of the open source community i was going um, to say know, open source has just totally transformed the way that that yeah. happens as well so, so yeah it's getting, yeah it's getting faster and faster and faster I, I think to try to imagine software 50 years out is i was just about to say um like given the exponential rate at which technology is develops anyway and then then that being exacerbated by the global pandemic conditions, right? And now I'm asking you to predict 50 years yeah, in the future. Yeah, I think we'll I, probably just be sitting with a tube in our heads, you know? Yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably going to be, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the metrics, yeah. I do, I, you know, um, I, 
like I think that the neural implant thing is actually something that is that's that's going to occur. Um, not I think the way that Elon Musk, you know, okay. imagines it. So uh, you know, um, people who are um, tetraplegic, uh, you know, just what's happened there is the brain isn't working fine, but they it's just it's not connected to their you know their fingers anymore. But yep. the nervous system is still in there. Our brains are very plastic. And if you can put a neural implant in and give it a bit of surface area and connect it up to a bunch of neurons, and that will happen on its own, the brain will kind of find its way. Um, there's a really good video on YouTube of a, of a lady who, um, over the space of about two weeks, uh, from having this piece of, um, you know, connective, uh, this basically a, a, a bunch of little electrodes you know, mushed into the surface of her brain and connecting it up to a computer and connecting that up to a robot arm. Within two weeks, she was able to learn how to lift a Diet Coke and drink it. Uh, see, that's and, me. Uh, so, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the pace at which that type of technology is changing is, uh, is moving very quickly. Um, that that you know, fusion... Yeah, I was just going to say neuroscience, that fusion between the human brain and t technology going into areas like AI, augmented reality, yeah. all these different areas. It's just where what we can p potentially conceive, I mean, we mentioned that 50-year block, even over a 20-year block, yeah. it's such a fascinating time to be in the technology well, space. It's almost got to the stage where anything you can imagine can be made. You know, if you look at the advances that are happening in neuroscience and nanotechnology and robotics and AI and computing in general, it's almost got to the stage that anything that you can imagine can be uh, can be created. And actually, you know, kind of jumping back to education, um, this is one of the reasons I think it's incredibly important that we get more kids studying science and engineering because, you know, uh, if you bought a fridge 20 years ago, it had a, you know, a 240 volt plug and you plugged it in the wall and it had a little light. If you buy a, a fridge, you know, in five years time, it's probably going to have two or three microprocessors in it and, uh, you know, sensors to see if, if, uh, milk is going off and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we need, we need more scientists and we need more engineers. Um, and we need more girls studying science and engineering because, uh, we, we, the, the engineers who are designing and making these things need to reflect the society that they're making them for. Um, and you know, absolutely, you know, the, I, I would like to see a lot more, uh, a lot more women getting into engineering. That was the Tech for Good podcast. Listen, subscribe, and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.